0: All right, well, we're here for another uh, Quarantine All Access with uh, Mr. Jeff Zanelli. Jeff, how are you doing today?
1: Good. How are you?
0: Good. Nice to see you and your luscious uh, quarantine <laughs> hair. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm, I have uh, I have good COVID hair game going right now, I'd say. And, yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not getting haircuts. Let's put it that way. <laughs> or well, I'm, yeah, I'm letting the beard,
0: the beard grow, so we're all just... <laughs>
1: I'm crawling razors, so at least I can shave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so
0: again, weird. thank you for for, for oh. chatting. I know it's been a while since we talked, so it's good to see you.
1: <laughs> yeah, likewise. Yeah, yeah.
0: Absolutely. So last time we talked, I think it was around Pirates, uh, Dead Man, Tell No Tales. So oh. that has been quite a few years. Um, yeah. But to, um, before we start, though, before we uh, get into it, I, I was for some reason the other day I was remembering. Do you remember our, our little uh, shared Lisa Loeb encounter?
1: <laughs> yeah, I do, I do remember that. Yeah, we were, so I brought my daughter to, a, a uh, with my wife and daughter, we went to a Lisa Loeb concert. She was singing like children's music. Right. And she'd released some records. They're really good, by the way, if you have young kids. Um, so we went to this concert at, at McCabe's, I think, in Santa okay. Monica, which is which yep. like one of my favorite guitar shops too. Uh, so we're in the back room where there are these cool concerts and I kind of look across the room and I'm like, I think that's Kaya over there. If I remember yeah, right, you, I thought you would text you or something here. like on Facebook. Like, are you at a Lisa Loeb concert right now? You
0: know. I like looked up and I saw you and I was like, oh, crap. I was like, afterwards, afterwards <laughs> like, oh, do you have a do you have a child? I was like, no. Like, am
1: I <laughs> no, I just came <laughs> to hear the, the kids music. Cause yeah, yeah well <laughs> you
0: know what it was it was great that was funny yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was—I I think I, was, I saw Lisa bit on like Instagram or something it made me trigger that memory
1: <laughs> okay <laughs>
0: <laughs> well let's uh, jump into it and so for anyone who maybe hasn't listened or watched our past interviews um give us a quick you know refresher of you know your background like how did you get into in, into music and a, and do you really kind of remember the point in your life where you decided this is going to be my career
1: Uh, yes let's see okay so I was I was a very late bloomer with music so I didn't play I mean I had a couple weeks of piano lessons when I was a kid didn't like it it didn't stick so I wasn't into that Um, then the first day of my sophomore year of high school I got you know I had found a guitar up in the attic and I was trying to glue the strings back together, which doesn't work, but I tried. And, uh, and my my mom saw me and she's like, why don't we just get that thing restrung? So we brought it to the shop, picked it up uh, after school on the day of the first day of school, my sophomore year in high school. So I mean, the, you know, the short version of that is it means that by the time I went to college for music, I was a three-year-old musician, right? So I was mm-hmm. you know, most of the people coming into the collegiate music experience were started at age three started at age eight you know i knew plenty of people that were like i don't remember learning how to play this instrument they just always did you know like they don't have memories from before they could play and i was this kid that just you know i got a guitar started a terrible ska band because i grew up in orange county that's what you do (laughs) and uh and then I think within like that, like the first month of having a band, I realized this actually isn't, you know, if this goes well, let's say this goes really, really well. And all of a sudden we have like hit records and da, 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 da. Now I've got decades in front of me of playing the hits that I'm writing in my twenties. And I can't imagine myself at age 60 wanting to go out and play whatever song, you know, so, so, what else could I do if I wanted to be a musician and kind of change hats a little bit and not feel trapped by prior successes or failures and all that stuff. And I think you, you can sort of naturally see it leads into film music because the, the joy of this type of writing is that every project is different, you know, from the one before it. So like I do go from pirates straight into you know uh, probably a thriller and then a comedy and you know a a kids animation and you know and you're changing hats all the time and even if you're in the same genre the movie's different so the style's going to be different and you know you that was that was the whole appeal to me and I figured that out probably within within uh, my junior year of high school you know I realized oh that's that's it you know that's that's what I want to do and then when I learned that there were places you could actually study it I ended up uh, going to Berkeley college of music for their film scoring program, but bear in mind, you know, where I grew up in orange County, Westminster is a city. So it's not, uh, I not how to describe it. It's an inland city. It's not affluent. It's not really um, an environment where musicians are supported in the way that like, if you grew up in New York, you know um, yeah, for instance, yeah. so so I was a unicorn, right? In where I lived, and there were no studios that I knew of. There were, I don't, I didn't know a single professional musician. So there wasn't like easy access to that type of mentoring. I was totally on my own. So the way that I saw that I could possibly get into it was first through getting an education, um, and and I also knew from a you know an older friend of mine who had gone to berkeley for one semester that a big part of that experience you know in addition to the education is networking and i thought well i can't network with anyone where i am you know the the friend of mine that had gone to berkeley was not a professional musician at the time so it was like no one could help me right so i need to get to a place like i need to get to a place where there are people around that do this you know and, and just immerse myself in that in that environment so that was how i ended up going to berkeley um while i was there i thought well now now the next step is how do i get into films you know and obviously they get made in hollywood so if i'm going to be out for the summers back to orange county uh with my family then i can drive up to los angeles if i find a place to work right so i'm i'm kind of like scheming i guess to get yeah, my toe yeah. door. and i sent out like some 40 or 50 resumes to studios in la anyone that had a anything listed about composing there used to be this like a phone book for studios and it was called recording industry source books so i'd go oh here we go they say film music and they got a letter saying we'll work for free you know like these yeah. Was back in those days were like please let me in right and i got <laughs> one phone call back and it was from hans's Reception Hans Zimmer's uh, studio, and he was writing The Lion King at the time. So, you know, he was uh, he was already Hans Zimmer, but you know, The Lion King t- to me was the one that sort of blew him wide open. He had done, dri- I think, um, Driving Miss Daisy and probably, probably, *Rain Man*, well, Rain Man of course. Yeah, yeah right. And I mean, I knew who he was as a composer, right, but, right, yeah. But it was you know, when I was an intern there, it was one building. Now it's I think eight or nine, you know, it's obviously expanded, but it was one building, Hans was there, uh, Mark Mancina was either there or about to be there and Harry, Gregson Williams. And, you know, it was much more kind of a, I guess it was an in, more intimate group. Um, yeah. So I, I worked for him for that summer. And then I worked um, every summer and winter break when I'd bounce back and forth between Boston for college and back to LA. And then when I finished my schooling was 96, pretty much perfect timing within a few months, John Powell was moving in to score face off. He needed an assistant and I was able to get that job. And and that was when I really got going, you know, um, right. And then from there it was, you know, John's assistant, which was really a technical job. I loaded his computers. I got, yeah. And then uh, eventually he started giving me more musical tasks, which was great. And, uh, I mean, you know, that was where you really start kind of learning. And then at probably 1999, Hans asked me to work on Hannibal as an arranger, probably because he had heard from John that I was doing all right. And, you know, and that was the next stepping stone. And then from there, it's just little incremental steps, a lot of work with Hans and with um, a few with Harry and maybe one with Steve. And, and, uh, and then I started getting some solo projects and, you know, here we are i guess we are, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah
0: <laughs> i just it's, i just love i love the, the the trajectory it's just it's everyone's is different everyone's is unique and it's yeah. just i think it's very interesting to hear how everyone kind of got their little break and use that as a platform to jump up and everything so but um so yeah let's jump into some projects because you've done a lot since last time we talked All right. um well, the last one we didn't get to talk about the Ottoman uh, lieutenant, which I thought was a very in- interesting project, and you know I'm, I'm half Turkish and everything. So talk about oh. working on working with you know my dad, my dad side of the family is all Turkish. So okay. um, I'm am interested. How did you approach this story, especially set in you know Turkey and everything, and and yeah. dealing with you know especially as a you know an American composer, you know t- dealing with a different world and different musical sounds. So kind of, kind of talk about that process.
1: Yeah. So what I thought was super interesting about the movie was, you know, the idea was an American woman goes to um, basically run a hospital in the middle of a war, right? In a foreign right. country. Which is a, first off, you, you have to be daring, and, you know, to do something like that. You also have to be extraordinarily compassionate about people that aren't yours. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it wasn't her heritage. It was, I, I want to do what what's right and what what can help the world. And she falls in love um, with a, a soldier who is Muslim, and she's a Christian. And so, to me, I thought, I think, you know, I, I'm raised on the idea that uh, religious differences aren't enough to prevent two people who love each other from being together. So mm-hmm. that was something that I thought was. Uh, super compelling and that for me was what made it interesting so you know forget for a second it's not really a religious movie and it's it's not meant to be it's really more of a it's a love triangle set against the backdrop of a a war of actually of a genocide Mm -hmm. um and so you know in that sense it makes it feel sort of classic there's a you know like Dr. Zhivago comes to you know these kind of like these movies that are set in a period where they're telling these kind of stories. Those are interesting to me. And then I thought, well, you know, how can I approach it musically without actually? I'm not trying to write religious music. I'm trying to write right. human music, right? Because it's, it's a right. human condition. You can fall in love with all, you know, anyone, and they, and it. None of that should be really affected by borders or you know what I mean like so so that was where where I started and then I think just because it had a period feel the the music you know I wanted to lean more towards a timeless sound as opposed to trendy there's a few nods to the geography and the ethnicity of the music but mostly it's um acoustic instruments orchestral instruments uh trying to tell that story you know um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you saw it, actually. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, I know it's one of those
0: smaller films that, you know, kind of clip yeah. under the radar sometimes. But I think it's interesting and, and really great. And I think people should check it out for sure. And your score is fantastic.
1: So. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you.
0: <laughs> um, you also did uh completely shifting to a different genre, of course, Red Shoes <laughs> and the Seven Dwarfs. So. <laughs> Very different. <yeah. laughs> but Very this, different.
1: Is this is the luck of my career. Right? Yeah. So, so talk right. about uh,
0: Yeah, approaching kind of this fairy tale, a little bit of a comedy spoof type uh, world. Yeah, uh, it must have been. I think it must have been fun. A fun score to write.
1: Absolutely, yes. And it's super colorful. And you know, and, and like that. That's the thing about animation. Like you know, they you know, no one sets out to make an animation that doesn't look bright and beautiful and colorful. So like you have, you already have this sort of compelling visual world that just you know sort of grabs you and pulls you into it I mean you know it's 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 um it's easy to get excited by it I guess I'd say so that one okay because it's doing like a fairy tale and it's like a sort of upside down fairy tale a little bit um you know I'm using some of the kind of like the big orchestral gestures but it also has like a lot of very interesting sort of stylistic detours you know like Mm -hmm. but actually that's one of the very few times that I I did write a Scott cue for that. For that you know, She's like sneaking through the, the town. I'm just thinking about it. You know, Mark Ronson said to me one time when I was playing guitars with them during, um, we were writing a score for Mordecai. He's, he's, he stopped me from playing and he says you can take the boy out of orange county but you can't take the orange county out of the boy you know because i'm playing either some socal punk thing or some ska thing or whatever you know and i'm like right uh, you know at some point you have to not be ashamed of your roots and so there they are in in red shoes and the seven doors there is finally a a ska guitar in one of my scores um but i digress but the point of that score really was that it could make these big rapid shifts you know from a big orchestral action scene typically fueled by comedy um into you know there were pop songs that were written that were dovetailed in and out and I actually worked a little bit with the songwriters to kind of do that which is also fun and um you know it, it makes it pretty eclectic and super fun to work on that stuff so and, and that yeah. one actually I th- finally got a U.S. streaming release during during the pandemic actually. So.
0: Yeah, because I think it was finished a few years ago, wasn't it? Like maybe a while. Yes, two years it,
1: ago. and they released it in. Um, so it was a the production company was South Korean, so mm-hmm. they were they were all in Seoul, and so and they had a release throughout um, Asia in the theaters, and also um, it started to make its way to Europe. I think right before COVID, Spain had a release, and you know, and then um, once we all kind of got quarantined, they. Shifted the release to a streaming release, which so people could see it because I think you know it's it's a good movie and it's super fun. And you know, I think it's definitely informed by well, let me put it this way I'm sure they heard my music on Pirates and said, you know, this guy could do this because it there's a certain amount of irreverence about the way we treat the orchestra in a pirate movie that uh, you know. is, well, it's certainly different from how you treat the orchestra in the Ottoman Lieutenant, which is, you know, much right. more, you know, like steeped in tradition. This is more like it's a rock and roll orchestra, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, South Korea has such an uh, amazing animation culture there, too. And it's Incredible. fantastic. And I think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of our shows that we love here in the United States are all animated over in yeah. South Korea. So, like, even if you're watching <laughs> Simpsons, Family Guy, even our stuff, at Cartoon Network, a lot of our work is with the South Korean studios, So. They really right. know animation well,
1: yeah. They, they do, and, and they, I also like, that that project had a lot of, um, I guess, I don't know, cross-cultural uh, aspects. So, obviously, they hired an American composer, the actors mm-hmm. are English. The, uh, one of the character designers came up through Disney, and so, you know, there's a lot of, like... The whole world of animation is such a beautiful thing, because there's, there's a very... Uh, collaborative spirit among animators they're, it's they don't seem ever to be at each other's throats it's more like they share ideas they share pe- you know personnel move all over the place and it's really fascinating and kind of nice to see um the difference there because sometimes you know it's it doesn't feel cutthroat it feels very supportive and you know they're all they're all rooting for each other so all right uh, anyway, yeah it's quite nice to see so
0: absolutely um and uh, another another film you did that i really love was of course christopher Robin, uh that you uh, co-score with john bryan kind of coming in to to do some additional work but kind of becoming a co-composer on the project and that was just a touching and sentimental film and you brought a lot of heart to it and i thought that your score somehow just really cracked the 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 emotional core of everything so much and it yeah. such a you know it was, i think it's one of those interesting Takes on you know property that we all know Winnie the Pooh and kind of examining it a different light and kind of giving it a more human life live action side to it.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Mark Forst directed it would say the, the phrase that he said to me that stuck was magical realism, mm. and I thought you know like the, just that as a term was enough for me to get mu- musical ideas you know it, yeah, it yeah. You know, points towards something and you go well in a funny way magical realism you, you could almost describe all music that way because you know you, you have these moments as a composer when you because we're by ourselves a lot and you know it's it's three in the morning and you play two chords and i've, I've really have had this happen where it strikes me as patently absurd that playing those two chords together makes me feel an emotion. Like, like, and then I really stop and I go like, if I want, if I were a scientist, right. And I step back and I said, why does that happen? I, I have no answer for that. I, I do know that if I play D minor and B flat, it feels heroic. It feels emotional. I know that if I play C major and D minor, it doesn't feel emotional in the same way, you know, and certain two chords together or obviously the the flow of a longer piece of music is much more than that it's a whole other thing and it doesn't make sense to me that it works but it does work so that to me is that's magical realism because all all music is sound waves hitting your ear you know like like it's, it's easy to understand why a big loud drum makes you feel afraid because you have an instinctive reaction to, you know, that is a dangerous sounding sound. A tree falls down. You got to get out of the way. It's dangerous. You know, a lion roars. You're going to get it. Want to get out of the way. Though so I understand those reactions, but why does a couple of chords make you feel sadder than you did a minute ago? I don't know. You know, it, I really don't. And I th- actually don't want to know why it works because that might take you know when as soon as you pull the curtain back right you're you're right. You're, you're destroying some of the magic and you're left with realism and i'm tired of realism you know so yeah. so christopher robin just that phrase was enough for me to go yeah you know you can commit fully to a movie about a talking animated bear when you realize the magic of it not not the right. real you know It the forget real you know like this and so just the way mark is so good at this um the way he made the movie it it really pulls you in and you know you start to feel these characters and not just because you read the book when you were a kid it's his unique sort of presentation of it really does make you go wow i do want to reconnect with my childhood again and i i don't want to leave that so far behind which is really the the story of that of that movie um, you know we all lose a little something as we grow up and now we've had the realest year uh, you know any of us can remember just now won't it be nice yeah. to get back to some magic so so anyway i i'm i'm just sort of riffing a little bit about Christopher Robin but that was just a special project for me cuz yeah. you know, it was it was beautiful it did happen very quickly. Um, so there wasn't, you know, there wasn't time really to, to think it through. I had to do it all emotionally and, and kind of respond with my gut. And, um, you know, I, my normal process where there's a little more space in the schedule is to write something, you know, finish a whole bunch of it, watch it, think about it, tweak it, change it. You know, th- that part of the process wasn't there anymore because we had to work so quickly. So it was all just like, well, I have to trust my gut right now and I have to write what I think this should be and, and just go, 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 go. And, and I did. And, um, you know, we, it probably affects the score in, 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 in material like that. It probably affects it in a good way because there, it's not analytical, it's not intellectual. It's really just like, this is a sort of an outpouring of emotion that affects hopefully the audience and, you know, I'm trying to just tell this this story. Um, yeah. that I mean, I just think so fondly of that, and I, yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, not, not necessarily the way that I like collaborated with Mark Ronson on a score. It's di- a very different process, but, but we've found a way to tell this story, which has a certain amount of melancholy in it without mm-hmm. it feeling, you know, well, actually, melancholy is maybe the wrong word. It's it sounds bigger than it than than You know, it's a joyous story set within you know right. a little bit of heartbreak. So
0: there's a little somber tone to it, and yeah. And, and yeah, and, and and of course, it was an interesting, uh, just a unique project because you of course you came in last second. For anyone who doesn't know, it's part of the yeah. industry sometimes a composer who's working on it makes music replaced or they wanted to go with a different direction. So you didn't work directly with John, but you're very also respectful of the music that remained in the film too of his and and so that, that was probably just a hard way to navigate but also yeah I think your gut reaction you're right it's just like you're reacting and it's just coming out of you and that's what it is so you're not overthinking yeah. it you're not doubting yourself you're not you know maybe going back oh let me try five different versions it's like no this is the first thing that comes to mind right
1: right right, right. and it doesn't mean yeah. necessarily that it goes straight in the movie obviously Mark was very you know very in tune with what I was doing and, and we worked intensely together to, to finish but you know the truth is i'm i'm also an enormous fan of john's music so mm-hmm. it was sort of yeah uh, you know I, I in a perfect world i would i would have i would love to have spent the the four months that i spent with mark ronson you know in a room together making music i think that would have been amazing and, and you know that, that sort of I'd i do that tomorrow. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Well, no, yeah. I do it after I get vaccinated tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. After, but you know yeah. what I'm saying? But but I'm saying like you know that it was a different it was a different way of doing it. But but I I think you're right to point out, and I'm glad that you felt that I respected his work because I do.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, definitely came across. Um, and uh, so you you got to again reunite with another director you worked with in the past let's let's talk about renoting with your dead men tell no tales director joachim running on for maleficent uh mistress of evil and of course another uh, you do such a great job with these kind of fantasy scores and i I think it's just like part of your bread and butter and and um talk about working with joachim and and coming back and and of course tackling a sequel that you didn't work on the first one right yeah yeah
1: Yeah, it's funny because you know with with the pirates it was Pirates 5 was the first one I did with Gilcombe and that when it was such an easy transition because you know I think even though I wasn't the composer on the first four movies I was the additional music you know one of the part of the team I always approached those jobs as though I were the composer anyway you know Mm -hmm. and I mean I know full well I'm not it's Hans's movie but it was. It's the. It's the way I have to do it, so that I can commit to it. Because otherwise, I feel. I don't know. So. So moving from the the first four pirates into the fifth was not that hard at all. I guess is a right. or, or, or put it. You know, I felt. I felt ugh, totally ready. I. I knew it was going to be a difficult job because anything at that scale is difficult. But I was. I knew how to do it. Maleficent. Totally different. I wasn't involved in the first score. Um, I loved the first score, but, you know, frankly, I'd never written anything at all like the first Maleficent score. So, you know, if, if I wasn't already, you know, in a good relationship working wise with um, Yoakum, no one would have called me for that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there's no, you know, there are, so it was sort of like, I did sit down with him, with Yoakum before the movie was shot. And, you know, I said, look, well, first thing I said was tell me about the movie like what's what's new what's different what's 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 how are you expanding on the story I mean you know it's the open question why would you make a sequel if you know if there isn't something new to bring to it so he talked about all of that and that was instantly like okay so there's a whole new world that I can write um, I guess you know new material we're, we're pushing the we're pushing the walls out so he had he talked to me about a you know, uh, uh, the plight of the rest of the fae, which is, you know, there are multiple fae cultures, which we learn about in, um, in the movie and they've all been basically outcast from the world of human, from the human world. And they're living inside of them, basically inside of a mountain, like they're refugees, they're displaced, you know, and they're all collected in one place from multiple, uh, let's say countries we we're, we're, were saying biomes. Um, so, And Maleficent learns that she's not the only one. And that's a big revelation. And so that was a whole new world. And and I thought, okay, that that almost exists outside of the first score. So that's that's a place where I get to be Jeff. But in the same way that I respect John's music for Christopher Robin, I respect James's music for Maleficent. And that means I have to learn this language, I have to learn how i use the tunes when he used them what they mean you know what i can do with them when they should be changed and you know uh manipulated in some way and when you know fans of the franchise in just in the same way in a pirates movie or a star wars movie or an indiana jones movie there will be a moment where you want to hear the tune and just play it you know and forget (laughs) for a second that it's not my music, and I don't have to go and say, this is Jeff, you know, I can say, this is Maleficent, right? So that's, that was how I approached that one. And I also, I really, really like when there's continuity between uh, scores across multiple sequels. It doesn't always go that way. But my feeling on it was, you know, forget that my little ego wants to take credit for everything that you know gets done the right thing for this movie is to give the movie what it actually ought to be and there are moments when you know maleficent earns and should have the tune that she always had and there are other moments when she's doing something new that's different and she should have a new tune or you know and obviously aurora probably even more so has has a lot of character growth from the first movie she plays a much bigger role she's not passive anymore she's you know much more muscular and then you have Michelle Pfeiffer um, Ingress who's a whole new character and then the Dark Fay, which is a whole new character so so that the approach on that sequel very different from Pirates but you know the first thing I did was I got the scores from the original and I started going through them and going okay here's the instrumentation that he used and I thought well, first off, it's the largest orchestra on the planet, so I'll just have <laughs> that. You know, like there was nothing you could add to it. There's, you know, it was a humongous orchestra, and the then it goes big, yeah, yeah, it was big and choir. And the only place that really needed new um, instrumentation, I think, was with the um, with the dark fae culture that we learn about, and so that became like a place where I could go and, you know, bring in. Really, the idea was that it's many ethnicities all at once you know Mm -hmm. and not necessarily that they have a parallel to human ethnicity Um, but the way i could do it because the orchestra had basically been used to full extent already with james's score was to bring in elements some of them synthesized but some of them real instruments from around our world and use them in combinations that doesn't don't point you to a specific ethnicity you know if I if I put a sitar and a tabla you think of India so I could but if I put a sitar and a dumbek and a chimbalam you're you know it's it's now it's a whole other thing so so it's much more of a you know I guess more colorful kind of kind of world for them and I also knew part of the story is the fey are allergic to metal so they can't uh, iron they can't touch iron so I didn't really want to use any instruments that had a metallic sound or that, I mean, you know, you couldn't strum any instrument that has strings with metal in it. You know what I mean? So that right. instrument doesn't count. You can't use it. Right. You can, you can play a nylon string guitar. You can play hand percussion that's made with, um, you know, I don't know, drum heads that don't have metal, you know, then I really was meticulous about that. And so that sound, I thought, well, there'd be no reason why the dark Fay would want a metallic sound to their music. That's, they they're allergic to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ooh, so, right. so that informed it. And, you know, those, these are, you know, composer concepts. They're not things that need necessarily to translate to the audience, but, you know, they just, but they,
0: they're, they're there. I mean, it's the same thing how if a director will use colors and the lighting yeah. to, you know, and it's for those folks who are looking at the mise-en-scene and trying to examine it. I think the sound palette is something uh, sound and fan—I don't know what you want to call
1: that. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> but, but, but I know what you mean. Yeah, like one one thing I um, Hans told me this once. I think it was. He, I think he's talking about Apocalypse Now. He says, put the, the DVD. This is how long ago he told me this. Put the DVD <laughs> in your machine and watch it on fast forward, and just watch the the, the tone, the color tone as it goes by. So you you know say make make the movie 5 minutes long and watch the movie get darker lighter darker. You know what why and where does that happen and you know nothing in a movie is done by mistake like you're mm. saying. You know those colors are there for a reason and the same with the same with the music and you know it's not supposed to translate to to a person in the audience watching it and going oh I heard a metal noise in the you know what I mean like that's not re- right, right. Re- but you I think there's still a um, kind of a i don't know subliminal intake and it also means that the score is even more specific to the movie which i'm, I'm a big 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 advocate for specificity in film scores i right I don't think you can take my pirates music and put it in another movie or or the pacific and put it in another world war ii movie you know it's it's really for that thing and
0: right right
1: I, at least I tried yeah. to do that. You know? Yeah, I
0: mean, I mean, I think any any composer, you're you're writing for the story that's in front of you. Right. Um, right. And uh, so speaking of kind of reconnecting with directors, um, you also got to reconnect with David Kep, which is yes.
1: fantastic.
0: You guys have such a great... Uh, uh, so you kind of went back into maybe thriller territory, not 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 so yes. much of a Mordecai uh, slap, no, no. <laughs> slapstick romp.
1: <laughs> no, right. But, but Mordecai, I mean, like... Oh, God. It was just so fun to write that. But the thing with Dave, I realized while I was doing, you're talking about the movie You Should Have Left, which was a thriller, Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried. And um, he wrote it. And I think David and I are similar. You know, when I talk earlier about getting to change styles a lot, you know, the first movie I did with him was Secret Window 15 years ago now, I think, or maybe. Right, yeah. So he's one of my oldest friends in in Hollywood, even though he's in New York, but you know what I mean? In the business. Um, And then we did uh, Ghost Town. Ghost Town, Ricky Gervais. Yeah. I feel like I'm forgetting one, but there was Mordecai. And then this, so no, I think that's all. Yeah. Then then you should have left. So, and they're all different. So like he, like me, wants to, you know, change hats, I guess you'd say, and kind of make something new and different. Um, His... So I sat down with him and Kevin, actually, Kevin Bacon, who was producing the movie um, before they shot it. And we just talked about ideas. And I mean, I. Think, and he's a, he's a
0: musician too. Uh, he has a yeah. band with his brother, the Bacon Brothers. Right? Yeah, and they're great, actually. And, yeah. so, and
1: it was interesting to, to talk with him because not all um, directors or filmmakers have, have that kind of background. In- you know any specifics except how much of the um, score do we want to kind of um, uh, you uh, i guess like utilize the geography you know because we're set in uh, wales um i mean most of the story they go to wales for for a um, vacation and then you know pertinently get trapped in the house right (laughs) Sort of an interesting accident because obviously we started making the movie before the quarantine came and then when it did come they they it was released on streaming which i think is sort of cathartically right for a movie like yeah, that. yeah but we talked about sure. you know yeah. a, like how much should we try to involve welsh instruments um you know we weren't trying to write a welsh score if we were well they wouldn't have hired me and I'm not that guy so you know but but using the instrumentation so I did like like I went and got a there's an instrument called a kruth which is sort of like a I'm doing this this is how you hold it <laughs> it's um it's sort I'm of like not, a I'm fiddle. Not, I'm
0: not having a seizure I'm,
1: I'm yeah I don't I don't it have to... it with me but yeah okay. and you put it you know it's like a fiddle basically you put it on it's like yeah. a lap fiddle, sort of like that um and then there's some other instruments that I use there's a there's a larger sort of older brother called the taglharpa which is not specifically welsh but it is uh in the same family of instruments and it's like the bass version so he's using the two of those and then um but not to try to play a welsh melody it was more like right you know what can i do because on on scores like this and also the ones i do with Dion taylor i especially like creating i i, I guess you'd like really specific unique sounds for the movie that are something that I just do on my own you know like I'm not right. a crude player there are many fine you know ex- world-class musicians who can play the instrument but what I can do is I can put a microphone up in my studio I can find a couple notes that I like that are you know inspirational and they start to generate musical ideas and then eventually you know, inevitably they become part of the score too. And so if you listen to that music, the movie opens or with um, me, uh, well, when they arrive in Wales, I should say, it, it, with me sort of struggling with that tagle harp I it, I can't play it. But what's super fascinating is you can hear the struggle in in the me trying to perform it, you know? So it adds like a layer of tension that actually wouldn't be there if someone, could play the instrument because it will sound and feel easy and so now all of a sudden I've got a sound nobody else has because it's my hands my instrument my microphone you know and my three in the morning (laughs) and (laughs) and now I've got something unique specific for the movie that says you should have left and no one else can have it and it won't be in another movie of mine you know so this was part of the way that I like working on that type of movie you know I, the David Kep films are actually a good crash course when I talk about specificity. Cause if you go from secret window with it's very, I would call, I mean, I was, I'll openly say very influenced by Bernard Herman. Cause it felt yeah. like a Hitchcockian yeah. throwback thriller. And then you go to ghost town, which was a romantic comedy of its time where, you know, the, the, the pop music elements that get into the score are, of its time as well. It, I mean, you know, it's, it's Snow Patrol and John Mayer and all that, you know, those those are like, they're some of the songs are even used in the movie, but that production technique applies. And then I have the orchestra there, but it's playing in a very, um, how would I call it? Of playing in a style that's very sort of chamber group and generally cheerful, I guess you'd say, and comedic and that kind of thing. And then you go to the third movie I did, which was Mordecai. That, that's what I did with Mark Ronson as a co-write where, I mean, it's a heist movie. It's got a sixties throwback and Mark's sort of retro sound and pervades it. And we did all the band stuff with the Dap Kings in New York and the horn section from the roots. And like, and like, it's all legit. And then the score side of it is more along the lines of, pink panthers you know what i mean like this kind yeah. of thing we're in this sort of zone and all this stuff that meshes together a, a third and totally different score and then you get to you should have left and, and it's literally me with the microphone by myself with a candle going <laughs> on a cello abusing you know whatever instruments around that can give me the sound so that would be a when i talk about specificity those four scores in a row if you listen to them is a crash course and what i mean by it they're you know you couldn't take a single piece of music from any of those and put it in the other movie and have it work, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah.
0: yeah. And um, so we finally, re- I want to get to Dion Taylor, who's of course, yeah. such a fantastic collaborator with you and you guys done Traffic, The Intruder, Black and Blue, and of course now uh, Fatal. Right. And uh, so talk about how you, how you met Dean and uh, what clicked and uh, yeah. what happened. What happened? Did you know? Did you feel it? Like, is it mutual? Like, did he, when you meet a director that really connects and you go, this is somebody I can work with continuously?
1: Totally. It, it, absolutely. Um, okay. So I met him. We had a mutual friend in his editor, Melissa Kent, who was cutting traffic mm-hmm. and just happened to be t- probably saying Happy New Year to her or something. And she said, Hey, you know what? I'm working with this director you, you should meet because he loves your music for Disturbia. And I said, oh, sure, you know, I'll come and I'll come over and I, and I went in and um, so they, they were just in the early stage of the edit. He showed me uh, maybe three or four scenes. Um, So they didn't have the whole movie even. And he told me what it was about. And I thought it was interesting. It's about human trafficking. It's a thriller, but you know, it's within like a real scary sort of tragic thing that's actually happening to people right now today. Right. So that right, right, I thought right. was interesting um, because, you know, I don't, he wasn't trying to make a, you know, um, I don't know how you put it. He was trying to make a thriller within the, in the world of that because it was important to him. He knew, you know, that it was a relevant topic right and but of course it,
0: also you know you don't want to exploit it and turn it into like you know no things. that's that's yeah, that's exactly. what
1: exactly what i'm trying to say right right the, the goal was really to shine some light on it but at the same time you know you're, you're trying to tell a story that it's not a documentary you're trying to tell us right. you know a story within yeah. that world that might make the viewer go home and go what can i do to help you know which is exactly, exactly what i did and in fact you know i did some well anyway um uh so i watched i watched those scenes with him and then we started talking about music and what he likes and what he wanted the score to do and all that and it was pretty much instant like as soon as you hear dion talk i don't know if you've seen him in interviews or talked to him he's he's first off an enormous lover of cinema Mm -hmm. but he's you know like his enthusiasm is contagious, which I realize is like the wrong word to use for 2020. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like yeah. you get around him, you want to work with him. You want to be in a room with him because it's just like, it's inspiring. It's totally inspiring. Cause this is, this is a guy who had a career as a professional basketball player in Europe, finished that and said, I think I want to make a movie and in exactly the same way that suburban Jeff at age 18 said or 17 i guess when i went off to college i want to somehow get into film music neither of us had a clear path we didn't have friends who were mentors we didn't know you know no one could usher us in so we had to go like i got to find a way in here's what i'm going to do you know put your little toenail through the door see if you can wiggle the toe in see if you can get your foot in and now you can open it right so that's what that's how he makes movies he just went I'm just going to start making them and see if I get good. Right. And the next thing you know, he got good. <laughs> right. So yeah, he's, that's where he was. And you, and you think about that and you go like this, it's, this, it's outside the studio system. He works independently. And then he sells the movies, you know, through distribution channels. So he really is self-contained the way he works. And there's something super appealing about that, like, like rebelliousness and, sort of fearlessness that, you know, it brings me back actually to being a teenager and saying, you know, there's no reason at all that I should have ever thought that I could succeed in the music industry. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. I had to be a little bit fearless and so did he. So, and I think that actually is what made it click whether we said that or not. Well, no, I know we didn't say it, but that's what I think was the, the spirit of that conversation. So then it was like, send me a movie. I just want to do it, you know? And then, um, from then on the collaboration was a little different because he would call me up and say hey this is what I'm making next here's the script tell me what you think so I'm involved much earlier in his filmmaking now um so like I read The Intruder and I thought uh well first off I thought it's a home invasion thriller wouldn't it be interesting if all the percussion were you know made out of pieces of homes you know so i went to home depot i built this cage which it's not here anymore but it was behind me um and i dangled you know air vents and wood blocks and i had door hinges and door stops and that became the percussion and you know that's another one of those things i think if you listen to the score you might not even know that's what you're hearing but it is part of the spirit of the score you know the 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 metal clanging is actually air vent or a metal sheeting or you know construction pieces (laughs) you know yeah right i mean and like like instead of tubular bells i just bought pipes and cut them into sizes and they'd smack them you know so they're not actually pitched so you might not know it you'd hear it and you'd think oh it's it's a bell but it's meant really to be a doorbell it's meant to you know these are all of the kind of i guess concept ideas that i i come up with with him and because it's not you know because we're sort of renegade filmmaking you know it's it's gotta all be me you know so i just build it and i do it and it's like a handmade score and and the same too with um fatal and um, and i'm doing another one right now for him that he shot during quarantine which is i I actually didn't even know he was making it until he finished and he said hey i made another movie (laughs) i'm like of course you did dion you know because he makes (laughs) two or three a year (laughs) so and so that came out of nowhere but i'm like yeah all right you know let's let's get into it and uh you know we have this way of working now it's he works so rapidly that you know it's He's, he's always making another movie when we're finishing this one. So, you know, I, I've got to send things to him on set until he's able to come back down and we have to you know, it's not like the, the usual routine where like Mondays and Fridays you have a meeting with your director or something. <laughs> it's right, more like, right. i got to catch him when I can and then he comes over at the end when we're locking everything in to, um, you know, to get everything like tight for the dub. But, it, you know, it's that's been a super fruitful collaboration. I think I met him three years ago maybe four and i'm on my sixth movie with you. so know. you know he just goes you know it's it and they're all
0: different it just gives me like this memory of like when i was in film school it just feels like you're back with your friends making movies and you don't have this 100%. crazy pressure from the outside world like is it, is it no. just feel like that do you have to like are you still because i'm sure he's, he has investors and stuff but do you do you have yeah. pressure to like or do you get way less notes in this kind of environment because you're working directly um, with the young or is it more well, like
1: yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, there are less entities involved. It's literally me and yeah. Dion. So just yeah. like you're saying, it's like me and my buddy and, you know, we're making a movie. And, you know, I, the closest parallel to that musically is actually working on a movie with Hans or or the or Mordecai with Mark Ronson. It was like, right. he brought a bunch of instruments in. We played, We you know, we did a lot of, you know. I, I, it's really exciting to feel like I'm back at my sort of teenage years you know yeah, where it was yeah. like you know get home from school you don't realize how little pressure you actually have in your life at that point but you go I go upstairs I put on the guitar amp and I've got six hours you know to do nothing but play or you know or go make music with my friends or something like that and that was that is part of the spirit that gets I think captured in what you know what I do with Dion it's sort of like that with david Kep, even though we're on different coasts but you know it's these are they they become your friends the people yeah. you were you know so it is like that and, and with the like you're saying there isn't there isn't really a studio pressure from the outside as he's making it um I, I i mean black and blue was made as a studio film but i i didn't feel studio pressure that's the only one that he right. had done in conjunction um you know with uh, sony but, it, but the other ones he makes them and then gets them distributed. But I don't, I mean, in in that case, I don't remember. There wasn't really pressure. It's really mostly just me and Dion. And um, notes don't feel like notes when you kind of do them together. It feels it, like the process, it feels like the discussion. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a collaboration or something. Yeah. But, right, but you're so- right. I mean, something like as soon as there's $300 million at stake for a Pirates movie, there's understandably a different, you know way of working and and there you you do feel that you know you you try to be immune to it but you're not and i mean sure jerry brookheimer comes in the room and he's not immune to it so you know he's gonna make a movie he wants people to watch it he wants which means it needs to be as good as it can be and if that meeting that he's taking right then is about music well you're in the hot seat and and you you owe him your best you know it's that simple and you know and obviously yoakum feels that same type of pressure on maleficent and you know some of it you sort of thicken your skin and you sort of get used to it but i i'm not going to pretend that i'm immune to that i, I definitely yeah. feel I definitely
0: it's feel an it. interest. it's an interesting uh, thing because t- i've been talking kind of more recently with composure about this, this confidence and self-doubt and like because i think oh, your I- job requires a certain amount of confidence behind yourself but uh and uh, to, you know, be able to sit there and present your music, which is a very vulnerable thing, because you're writing this kind of alone by yourself and showing it to somebody for the first time. Um, yes. And it's part of you. But um, so have you had to wrestle with that? I mean, mm-hmm. do you still wrestle with that in terms of totally. how do you how do you overcome self-doubt? How, do you have a process I,
1: I, or... A, i don't know if you noticed when you started talking about it i just you hearing you talk about it made me nervous so yes i do still wrestle with it um yeah i've wrestled with it constantly or imposter syndrome or you know what i mean like right right you know i don't i don't know what the answer is i think the truth of it is that it probably fuels me anyway and that if i were to suddenly become immune to it, it honestly i think it would make me a worse composer yeah. um because it, it, you know no, nothing inspires like a deadline right but right. a close second is is fear of failure you know it, it is inspiring and it, and it does you know maybe that's not the, the the exact way that we like to be inspired but the truth is right. that, that pressure does help it you know it pushes you and you think you think about it and this isn't the kind of job that I do when I go to bed at night, not thinking about it. You know, it's the, the wheels are always spinning. Um, and that's, I think that's normal. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I, now I want to interview you. Cause I want to know what, what, what the other composers are saying. Um, but, you know, <laughs> but, but the truth is that I don't think it's ever going to go away for me. I think I'm always going to feel like, well, in the same way that when I, when I walked into the, when i walked into berkeley as a 17 year old college student who had only played his instrument for 3 years i was instantly in the bottom 2% and that meant if i'm going to do anything i have to outwork them cuz cuz if they work as hard as i do i'm still going to be in the bottom 2% <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah, yeah. by the time we're done with this and and i'm using that as a as a as a metaphor it means it's the same thing in hollywood you know i always feel like i'm behind i always feel like um, I, but I, but I always was behind. I was always the youngest guy in the room. I was always the least experienced musician. And da, 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 you know that uh, obviously not the case anymore, but but I still feel that way. Mm, you know, yeah, I, I still feel yeah. like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of. Well, I absolutely do not feel like I've made it in Hollywood. Let's put it that way. I feel I like have, yeah. I've got a lot of work to do. I feel like I'm doing the work. So I'm happy about that. And I'm, and I'm certainly proud of the work that I do, but you know, self-doubt is a, (laughs) it's just part of my process now. I think, uh, you know, and the other day I saw on a, uh, on an internet forum, someone used the phrase, fake it till you make it. And it sort of turned my stomach. Like I sort of thought like, I've heard the phrase before. I can't stand it, you know, because I don't know how to really say this. I feel like I'm not faking it. I feel like it's all effort. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, so, so absolutely true that when I got the call from David kept to go like, Hey, I'm thinking of putting you in touch with Mark Ronson to see if you guys might want to do this together. You know, here's what I'm thinking. I have this kind of idea for the score. I thought, I don't know how to do that. I didn't think I'm going to just say, I know how to do, I'm going to fake it. I said, I would like to meet Mark. Cause here's, what's going to happen. I'm going to learn something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. And then it was like, that, that's like the best thing that could have happened, you know, cause there's no one on the planet that could have been a better co-writer on that movie. So I come away from that thinking. That was a great experience because I, I did something with someone who showed me how to do something I didn't know how to do. So I didn't have to fake it, you know? And, yeah, and just yeah. like when I'm talking about, you should have left. I, I, I didn't want to write a Welsh score because all I could do is fake that, you know? So I said, I can, I can get Welsh instruments. I can use them to create a flavor, but th- no way do I want people to say, Jeff Sinelli turns in the greatest Welsh horror score of all time. You know what I mean? So like it was, that just wouldn't make sense. If you wanted to write a Welsh horror score, you probably would do better with a Welsh composer, you know? So yeah. I, I guess, it, you know, I'm, that that idea translates i think to everything i do so if if there's something i don't know how to do i'm usually pretty open about it even with directors and they say oh we want we want a polka and i go okay i'm i'm going to try <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like I, so I, i'm not going to sit here and fake that this is my 300th polka <laughs> you know so right. it's a, it's a little i don't know i i, I I'm a, I've gone off on a tangent as usual with you, Kyle. I'm sorry, but that, no. But we, I love that's
0: why we I love talking with you. Jeff, we get into yeah.
1: things.
0: Yeah. But I Because I remember. Uh, I just want to ask you because I'm reminding back to to, to pirates. Uh, yeah. You graciously invited me to that session, and I was filming yeah. stuff for you. And uh, and yeah, I, I kept thinking. I mean, I mean, take us through that. You're 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 sitting there at this console. I think you had Alan next to you. Um, I think Bruce was next to you and nick was out there on the floor conducting and behind Mm you you have mitchell Lieb and like Kalen frank and all the disney execs and i think jerry had just popped in right and you're and you're there trying to make sure your music comes to life Uh, what is how is that a nerve-wracking experience at the recording stage or is that more of like you can tune everything out and just you're focusing on the music but but when you have all those you know you have the execs behind you you have your producer popping your directors are sitting behind you is that nerve-wracking or is it more comforting having everybody there behind you
1: um i don't i don't think of it as nerve-wracking i think i still have this experience when i walk onto a scoring stage or or into the building at abbey road for instance you you walk mm-hmm. under that sign or something and it's i sort i get sort of taken by the kind of awe and the wonder of just just that they let me in the building is you know is it's it's pretty exciting and so and then all of a sudden you feel like you're in the world series kind of uh, you know it really is you know you're at the you're at the you're at a place where there's there's 80 or 100 people in your orchestra that have all been playing for decades so you're looking at like thousands actually of years of hard work you know what i mean and yeah yeah it's all in one room and there's, you know, it's super inspiring. It, it forces me to rise up, I guess you'd say, like, you mm-hmm. know, to kind of rise up to the, it, cause it's, I don't want to say it's a challenge. The musicians are amazing, you know, it's not, it, it's, but it's a big day, <laughs> you know, and, yeah, and so yeah, you're right to say like, if, if Jerry's there and, you know, and he might want to, enact some changes or talk about something or you know yokum might want to say hey, what if we t-? you know you, you might be doing some real like legit musical work even while an orchestra sitting there waiting for you you know you can i guess sometimes i'm aware of the fact that it's it, the clock's ticking and maybe that's a little bit nerve-wracking but usually those moments are more celebratory and you know it, it's still hard work because y- your job is to you know the musicians are world-class in those rooms you know and what that means is they can they can play everything every which every way possible right you know and so the job actually is to you know producing that session means you know you can say Okay, I wish the flute sounded a little more hollow, and they know what you mean by that, and they change, they can affect their tone, and that's not because they made the wrong choice the first time they played it. It's because it's just a new, it's a new opinion or or an attempt at trying something or something I'm trying to incrementally improve the performance of the music, and you know, the those the best moments in those sessions are where you, where you, as as a composer slash producer in that role say something that allows the musicians to kind of meet you halfway to you know give them an idea and then they all want to contribute and they say oh i i know what you're trying to do what if we did this you know right because think of it like you know on every single string instrument if you move the bow a centimeter closer or further from the bridge it changes the tone so as soon as you have 60 players there's leeway wherever they're going to put that bow so for and that's just one little tiny aspect that you, that they and you have control over. Right. So yeah. you might work and you might go, you know what, you guys move it up. You do this, you do that, you, do that. you know, and you're starting to like construct the performance in, in ways. And typically you don't have to say to a string player, move your bow closer or further from the bridge. That's a bit pedestrian. But you say mm-hmm. to them, you know. I wish the violin line were brought out a little bit more. I wish the cellos were a little more tucked in, and I wish the flute sounded more hollow. They know what to do, you know, and they'll try it. And then, and, and of course, having someone like Nick on the stand as a conductor is another set of great ears in the in the room with the mics. I'm on the other side of the room after the microphones, which is where I like to be because it's one step closer to the to the final, you know, product. Final so final mix, yeah. Yeah. And Bruce Fowler, of course, is a genius orchestrator. So he's there. So as soon as you go, I wish it were, I wish it felt thicker. He's like, okay, here's what we do. And then off we go. So I do like having, I like having the team there and I like having the filmmakers there, Um, you know, and especially on Christopher Robin when everything was had to be done so quickly, there was quite a lot of tuning on the stage you know, oh, if we did this, and right in that moment, we could get more emotion, and, you know, and it's my job to figure out how to deliver that. Um, I Those are my favorite days, and I'll tell you, that's the main the main thing that I miss during COVID, because, you know, I'm, I'm writing music that won't be recorded for a while, because I'm on some long-term projects, then I'll be in front of an orchestra, but otherwise, I've been, you know, I did, worked on Dion's movie, I worked on David Cap's movie, and like I was saying before, those are all, pretty self-contained you know it's me it's me in this room and then at some point I'll have a group but it'll be 10 strings it's not going to be a big orchestra so that's a different um way of working and frankly you know depending on the schedule and and what goes on with the pandemic they I might be recording musicians one at a time and assembling it you know
0: yeah that's what I think composers have been doing yeah so it's been it's been literally one piece at a time
1: (laughs) I know, I know Lauren,
0: Lauren had to get to go through that with his Dark Materials and his recent project yeah. too. So it's, um, it's a tricky situation. Um, but I do want to jump back to Sey before we close up shop. Um, uh, you know, talk about working with, on this film with Dion because it comes out, I think comes out today. I think people it's can right. right it really comes out today. Um, so talk about what were the initial conversations and what were your goals with this score? Yeah. What did you end right. up doing?
1: I guess. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so, okay. With on this one. Um, well, it's a femme fatale movie, right? I mean, I, 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 the plot, I don't know. You probably can gather most of it from watching the trailer. There's a man who um, has an affair with a woman who ends up using, you know, that, as blackmail to basically sort of bind him to kind of uh, commit crimes on her behalf. And you know what I mean? And, right, and so, right? so she's bad news and he, he's bad news too. He made him, you know, he shouldn't have done that, you know, anyway. It's, so it's, there's a morality to the story that I think, um, comes to play and I think also because I I remember the you know the era when basic instinct and fatal attraction and this this kind of it was a genre that was quite popular Um, very much yeah yeah and I I think of the scores that get written for those which are very sort of I would say like darkly romantic right because there's a you know you're talking about well you're talking about infidelity which is destructive and you know
0: But there's also a seductive, sexual side to that story. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. That's right. And there's that, and then it's it's wrapped up in a in a manipulation thriller, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I I suppose in the more modern context, we have Gone Girl, or you know, I'm sure there's a there's quite a few um, examples. But for me, I started to think about the instrumentation of those, and like, you know, the Goldsmith version of it was sometimes influenced a little jazzy and you know I'd hear like certain kind of harmonic language that was unique to the genre and that was exciting and then I thought about the piano which for me I don't actually write that much piano music and 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 when I do it's not typically doing melodic roles and it's not you know so I thought it would be pretty interesting if I, if I went there, you know, cause it's, it might make it unique for, for me, but also it's in the genre. And then I thought, well, we're turning a lot of things over on their heads here in the story. There's a few surprises people won't be expecting. So what can I do to the piano to make it, you know? So I started kind of twisting and manipulating it and imagining, you know, the, the things I do to abuse the cello behind me, what would I do if it were a piano? Right. So, so now that became part of the sound of one of the first things I sent to Dion that he latched onto was this sort of warbly piano. That's been through some kind of weird tape machine kind of, you know, abuse, torture. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And now I'm like, all right, now I'm getting somewhere. And, and, um, Hilary Swank plays a character called Quinlan. she's the manipulative um character in the movie and so but she also has a really interesting backstory like she's she's gone off the deep end for a reason you might even find compassion for her when you learn what the reason is despite that she's obviously a horrible person (laughs) trying to abuse people um so that had that had this sort of darkness to it um and then i wrote a piece for that thinking of like when i say darkly romantic this is more just the darkness of the human spirit and what you can become if you've been through trauma even if the trauma is your fault you know what i mean so i'm, I'm trying right. not to give away plot points but there, you right. know it's, it's deep it comes it kind of comes from within and so it's deep and that was more of a like a dark kind of cello melody that i wrote that maybe twists a little bit more than than uh, traditional music but it's played acoustically um And then she's, you know, the story gets more and more warped. There's a scene where uh, Derek, who's Michael Ely's character, comes, catches his wife in the middle of an affair. And the the, um, music in the scene is actually, you know, his song like the song that he and his wife shared together it's actually being played so it's like as a source music so that's dark to begin with that that his wife used that song to commit adultery to (laughs) so that we took that song it's a keith sweat song called make it last forever and it we took that song in fact actually keith's people sent me the the stems of it so i could get into the bones of the song and as the song goes on it starts just as the song but it starts to warp and slow down and change and you know morph into kind of melts you know and in the, in the way i don't know if you're familiar with what with, with, with um chop and screw remixing which is slowing a song down and you know it, um it's a kind of a remixing technique that almost makes the voices like they don't sound like they're singing they're slowed down so much they almost sound like they're you're talking more, it's more conversation we're,
0: we're right well I, is this similar to what like hans did with inception where they slow down uh, Eat sure. a It wasn't vo- it wasn't vocal, but it was taking like that and turning into the brah, 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 brah
1: kind of. Yeah, and, or, you know. kind of. But uh, but in that sense, he he stretched the piece out like you're saying to slow it down. But it wasn't necessarily like a remixed. Right. What right. I'm talking about is more like it comes from DJ culture. You know, from okay. it's like a DJ thing to do. Um. And uh, I think it was DJ Screw was the guy that did it from um, Houston, which is where it got its name mm-hmm. chopped and screwed. Anyway, so, okay. so okay. we did a chop and screw version of it, which obviously, you know, again, it's, it's that idea applied to this piece of music. Not, not that I'm a chop and screw remixer, but the, you know, to take that idea, apply it to that song, have the song kind of melting down and then my score elements in with it as the scene progresses. And I think it was an interesting way to kind of bridge the source music to score music gap. like it, it's, it starts on the radio or on the speakers in the room and becomes this sort of trippy underscore piece of music as Derek kind of goes through his darkness. So a lot of the, I guess, concept of what I was trying to do with the score was get it to feel dark and visceral and, not nice because you know all these all of these choices that people are making in the movie are choices we shouldn't make in in our life they're they're poor choices and they and they have huge impacts and they you know and they have consequences and and you know that's what i think is cathartic about a movie like this it's you know it's a story about the absolute extreme possible worst version of what can happen when you make a bad choice, right? And so right. that's that I think is interesting. So the score in that sense is sort of melts down, and those are some of the big elements that you know we we did. Some of those evolved as I was writing the score, um, but the the piano kind of like taking the tradition like a traditional uh, femme fatale score instrument and morphing it into something unique for this I think was the first step to kind of cracking the code of the of the score uh, for Dion he loved it wow
0: yeah that's amazing that's a yeah. I, that's just a fantastic process I just, I, I, yeah this is the first time I'm kind of hearing about it so it's um uh yeah I, my mind went to inception so that's, that's a cool thing
1: yeah oh <laughs> but... yeah yeah no it's cool and and I think because um I, we ended up getting the stems of the song which made it a lot more kind of uh, have a lot more control over it, it super interesting to do that stuff and and um yeah anyway i'm hoping you get a chance to see that you'll kind of pick up on that now that we talked about it i think for the audience they might not necessarily know what's going on which i think is good right. It's just just hopefully effectively doing the subtext of the story which is you're really watching a man decline in front of you you know and right. and go through this very visceral, horrible moment of his life, you know, and, and the music has to play really what's going on inside him, not what's going on in the movie, you know, that's that's when I think underscore, you know, can enhance a movie when you're not, you know, it's not a great big, it's not like some great big tune or something. It's, you know what I mean? It's a visceral, it's an emotional gut punch, I guess. Absolutely.
0: Um, well, to, to wrap things up, uh, uh, let's, 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 uh, i like to uh, maybe ask you some just, I'll call them like, uh, you know, dating sites questions. Just some just, let's, <laughs> let's, know, let's know Jeff's the person. Let's know Jeff the oh, man.
1: <laughs> oh boy. I better get some tea
0: <laughs> We'll start off with uh, something funny. Um, so I think I asked this to Lauren a while back, but what's your favorite all night, all nighter power snack? So if you're up late finishing a queue or a deadline, three o'clock in the morning, what are you reaching for to power you through, or you're just like fasting throughout? The night?
1: Interesting. You know what? It's um, well, first off, the tea I just drank. I'm not a coffee drinker. I drink tea, but a lot of it. <laughs> so, a <lot> of tea. <laughs> yeah. So, so I drink a lot. Of, um, let me see. What would be a power thing? I I don't know. It's what happens to me when I'm working. Actually, is the opposite. I sort of, I sort of atrophy. <laughs> like I, you know. Yeah, I I forget to eat I forget um but I think if I'm looking for just a power boost oh man apples <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> healthy these days um you know what I'm trying to think of what else I mean I'm a, cho- a little bit of a chocolate buff so I do yeah. eat chocolate sometimes but I don't have like you know that's that's probably my go-to or or now we have a lot because it's it's quarantine we're getting a lot of like food in bar form you know right, power right. bars like that yeah. just in case we need to stockpile so that's another common one you know
0: <laughs> all right so uh, let's uh, outside of the studio what's your what's your favorite dish what's your favorite food to
1: Oof. oh boy
0: what'll um, be your last
1: meal <laughs> that's a good one i make a oh. meat lasagna and it's on my mind because I'm probably going to make one for Christmas because I think we all have earned a lasagna this year in the house. Yeah, that yeah. might be one of them. I make it with ham hocks and everything. Anyway, um, <laughs> that one, that I like. Um, I also like sushi. Um, that's my, which I that's don't, my favorite. Yeah good yeah we have a sugar fish near me that i like to eat at so, oh um, perfect that's easy and and so you don't have to think and they bring you good food. or there's a nobu that i used to go to when i was still restauranting right um, right but yeah I w- i'm gonna go with either sushi or lasagna that's what i'm going <laughs> that's with that's awesome uh what,
0: what's your favorite uh, alcoholic beverage and if, if it's not if you don't uh, drink alcohol what do you no, I know you're uh, a tea guy
1: tea. <laughs> it's tea <laughs> it's tea. <laughs> tea tea is your it's beverage
0: like, yeah <laughs> um how about your favorite place you've
1: traveled to Ooh, i went to italy for my honeymoon um and i absolutely adored it i've been italy's a a favorite i only got to go once um and then my my wife is from hawaii she has a lot of family in hawaii so i go there much more often um Mm -hmm. those are my two favorite two favorite places to go um you know when i go to i've been to england but not to do much more than work so you right, know, been right. To london, so, so i don't know <laughs> i don't really know london i know the hotel and i know abbey road <laughs> but um <laughs> you know it seems I, i'd certainly like to go there um i'm gonna i'm going with italy I'm going with Italy. yeah
0: uh my wife and i went uh last year and uh it was we went in january which so was not crowded we did rome uh oh, yeah. Florence and uh yeah pompeii we did i mean it was, it was fantastic oh
1: yeah <laughs> i went to pompeii when i was there yeah we, we went to venice and oh yeah the whole pompeii story fascinated me when i was a kid oh my god anything with ruins like
0: I, my next I, we want to go to greece because i want to check out the greek but just, just yeah, walking but... in like the coliseum and the, yeah the forum i'm just like this is incredible like it is. standing in the history and it's like in the yep. middle of this bustling city now but it's like you have know, cars driving around the coliseum I'm like, it's,
1: <laughs> it's so wild isn't it and, and <laughs> we, did you see when you were in florence the statue of david which yeah it, until i saw it you know was was always a picture in a book and you go well that's cool and then yeah. i walked into that building and you, you kind of come around that corner right and, say, yeah. right? and it's down and the it hall like, <laughs> right exactly and and it, it was like then you suddenly get it you know like i'm not that i didn't get that it was a masterpiece from you know from reading about it but you stand in front of it and you just go like i i had no idea how amazing that was actually going to be you know and that was like like a powerful moment so yeah it's,
0: and it's because i think they like put, from i remember they put like his unfinished ones along yeah. the way so there's like just like a a torso and then you see like david at the end and it's like
1: wow <laughs> right it's it's also like this it's an extraordinary lesson in salesmanship as well on the way in because like they it's so well presented but right i mean there's no there's just no denying that it's it's super special so
0: and, and i miss the i miss the uh, the cappuccinos and i miss uh the, the gelato which is fantastic
1: yep it's everywhere, I know, yeah.
0: <laughs> Definitely my favorite food place I've ever yeah, uh, visited.
1: 100%. Yeah, 100%. That's why, I'm, that's why I said lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: well, I, I think, you know, that's a, a good note to end on. Uh, thanks so much. I mean, we've covered so much today again, as we always do. Um, mm. I did want to thank you, actually, um, uh, again, for the Lone Ranger video, because you provided the... Oh, yeah. The, the, which I think we've just, it's almost near 400,000 views. It's such a popular video. Oh, wow. like,
1: oh, oh, that's good. I'm happy to hear it that.
0: Is, it is. Yeah. People are commenting and loving it. And thank you for providing the, uh, the the film mix of the of the track. So no, the, of course. The, the isolated sports version, which people love too.
1: Good. No, I'm happy to hear. When I was in London to score Maleficent, I um, I called up Daniel Pemberton. So I never met yeah. him, but I like him and that likes me. And it, we had dinner together and he said the same thing. He's like, you know what? I, I've i just, I've always wanted to meet you. And I'm like, no, 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 stop. I've always wanted to meet you. And he goes, and he said it was because of the, uh, the that scene in The Lone Ranger, which he, he also liked. And, and I know it almost took on a life of its own, kind of just yeah, that scene. But yeah. with, you know, Quentin Tarantino po- po- pointed it out. And I thought, that's pretty cool, man. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. I know that I know the film had a, a rough uh, uh, yeah. opening, but I think I'm hoping people go back and discover it. And I think people are because I mean, four thousand so. people are, are tuning into that breakdown of the scene. So
1: that's amazing. That's amazing. I didn't know that. That's good. I'll go. I'll make it four hundred thousand and one today. I'll go back. And okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Jeff, uh, thanks so much, and I hope of you course. have a, a great holiday with your family and all the best and stay safe and have a great new year. And hopefully, we'll get to do this in person next time. We're all vaccinated. (laughs) That would be nice.
1: I'm looking forward to being vaccinated and going out for sushi.